Are you guys ready? We're ready. You, you can hear back there, can't you? All right. I have been known as a loudmouth, so here we go. I'm going to try to prove it again tonight. This has been some kind of a summer. Every Monday night. Every Monday night. It's been hot. Every day it's been hot. But anyway, thank you guys for coming out and continuing to come in this kind of heat. And uh, thank the Lord that uh, we have fans, we have air conditioners, and we're still warm, and that's okay. Uh, we are in Ephesians 6. They're what? Oh, yeah. Okay. No comment. No. <laughs> um, we are on the sixth piece of armor. We've been doing basically one a week. And uh, this one is called our mighty weapon. We have a mighty weapon, this being our sword. Sinclair Ferguson. Anybody heard of Sinclair Ferguson? He's a pastor of uh, First Presbyterian out in uh, South Carolina. And um, he wrote a book on Christian warfare. And according to him, each piece of armor is directed to one way in which Satan attacks Christians. And uh, the breastplate, for one, he said, arms us against Satan as the accuser. Remember, we have the breastplate of righteousness, which we said it it can be practical. Or, uh, it's the way that we emphasize it was practical righteousness, the righteousness that we are actually doing. But there's also the the sense that. He has given us righteousness too. We are righteous in Christ. We know that. But then we do righteous acts. When we have righteousness in our works that we've done, that helps us against the enemy, knowing that uh, God has given us these kind of works. Uh, there's an imputed righteousness and then the practical righteousness. That protects us from being uh, uh, accused. Uh, then we have uh, the shoes. And the shoes or the, the boots or the sandals, however you want to think of it, protect us against... Uh, Satan as the serpent. He's the accuser. He's the serpent. And you remember, a serpent is on the ground, and uh, that snake can uh, get one's leg or foot very quickly. So uh, Ferguson goes on to say that strikes at the feet of the victims. So we want to make sure that we have the proper kind of footwear on. The shield of faith, uh, Ferguson went on to say that. That shows Satan as a tempter, and that shield is going to uh, protect us when uh, we have, when we are believing God, when we're trusting Him, we're trusting in His promises, and no temptation can get past that if we are trusting Him. He, uh, Satan likes to tell us that we can't trust God. He likes us to doubt and be deceived in that way. Then we see the helmet protects us against Satan as a deceiver. He will try to make you think wrong. Think of things that are not truthful. So he'll try to confuse you. The helmet of salvation, we know that ultimately that salvation that is to come, when we keep thinking of that future salvation, we know we have been saved, we are being saved, but what we will be is to be ultimately glorified. And so when you have that kind of thinking and knowing where we're heading and where we're shooting for, then that helmet really protects on that. And then another one is this the sword, and that is the means of resisting Satan as a liar. 
Satan is a liar. We know he's a deceiver. There's no truth in him, right? He is the liar. There's no truth. And that's where we arrive at today. Um, He will use truth, but he will distort it. The the belt of truth uh, didn't really put anything on that in, in the sense that we know the belt of truth to us, the way that we're taking it, is it takes in the whole compendium, the, the whole composite aspect of what the Bible or the, the truth of the very principles of God are concerned. And we're committed to that whole Word of God. The sword is going to be dealing with specific verses, particular scripture uh, that we need to defend uh, ourselves with and also use offensively. So anyway, um, we see Satan in many different ways. He's an accuser, a serpent, a tempter, a deceiver, a liar. He's called all those things in the Bible, isn't he? So we must be careful when somebody is this bad. Can you imagine somebody who does all these things? And, of course, him being a being that is much stronger than us. We need the strength of the Lord. Uh, as we get into the sword, let's uh, let's prepare by uh, going to the Lord in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your greatness. It's your strength that uh, we have to depend upon, and that's what you want. You want us always to be dependent, recognizing that you are the one who's in control of all things, and you desire us just to be able to trust you, to be able to follow you. Uh, to be committed in every aspect of what um, and who you are. And we know, Lord, we have quite a battle, but we know that there is victory. And it's because of the Word. We know that. And uh, may it help us in the many struggles and the battles that we have day to day, week to week, month to month, year to year, decade to decade. Uh, It's a long fight. But we know in the end that it is well worth it because you are training us to be like your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, our verse is 617, and take the helmet of salvation, and that's what we had last week, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. I have two grandsons who are really into Bible man. Bible Man um, was really big whenever Zach was growing up. So these guys have caught on to that, and I'm not so sure if they're making any more Bible Man videos. I don't think so. We haven't had any in a long time. But uh, they pick up on that, and Bible Man has a particular verse every time he fights the enemy. I mean, this is Ephesians 6 all over again. And uh, Willie Ames was the star of that for a long time. You guys remember Willie Ames? (laughs) What was it? You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Okay, well, you are too then. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's a good generation. (laughs) Willie Ames, as Bible man, could take on the enemy because he had this. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. They've got these little swords, these uh, saber, lightsabers and all that, you know, like that, you know, and... Uh, it, it has a voice that comes out of it, and uh, it says that line right there. <laughs> anyway, we go to uh, we go to the sword itself, the sword of the spirit. And the first thing we look at is okay, literally, what was Paul doing? Why did he say sword? Well, he looked to the Roman soldier and said, okay, here's another piece that they have. It was a sword, 
and the word is uh, makaira, and that is a specific kind of sword that is different than another sword. This specific sword is six to eighteen inches long, so it's really it's not really long. It's not one of these great big things like this, but it can be anywhere from this a dagger kind of up to maybe like that. Um, and it was meant for the foot soldiers for hand-to-hand combat. And so it would be in a sheath, and they'd be ready at any time to be able to take that weapon out. They would need it whenever they were to be uh, going up against the enemy. Always ready for use. Uh, You're thinking spiritually here, aren't you? Always have Scripture ready. You may not know what you may need at the time, but if you have been prepared already, you know that you can use the sword when this happens. Uh, This word, Machaira, let's look at it specifically in Matthew 26. Here you have Jesus. They're in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's being arrested. 2647. This is the night before they crucify him. While he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, here's the betrayal, with a great multitude with swords and clubs came from the chief priests and elders of the people. The word sword there are uh, the machiras, these daggers or short swords, and they all were carrying those. Can you imagine seeing maybe hundreds of these guys coming up there to get one man, basically? Uh, Go to Acts chapter 12, verse 2. You see the word again. And this is dealing with um, James, who was the first one killed uh, as a member of the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword, the Machaira. He was killed with that, uh, put him to death. That was... uh, at the time of Herod the king, stretched out his hand to harass some from the church, then he killed James, brother John of the sword. Anyway, um, that is the use of that word. The other type of sword is the great, big, broad, wielding sword, the kind that you try to um, crunch their heads, uh, smash them with these great big things, you know, big whopping, taking their heads off and such. Um, this is uh, something that is specific. But now we get into the spiritual meaning of it, the sword of the Spirit. Of the Spirit. That's interesting, sword, and now he takes a spiritual analogy to it. But the Holy Spirit is definitely involved here because he is the source of the Word. He's the very source. Um, Holy Spirit, as far as the Word of God is concerned to us, he teaches us, right? And um, I think... uh, Trying to think of the passage. Anyway, he, he teaches, he makes us remember. I think out of John 16, he will make you remember all things as he was saying to the disciples. But the Holy Spirit also deals with us. If we have scripture in our minds that we have read, he will bring them to remembrance. Bring those up. I'm sure every one of you have had that. And you can say, wow, the Holy Spirit gave me that one. You know, I, where, where did that come from? But it was something you have concentrated on or have used and read, and you needed that verse at the time, and there it was. And uh, either you said it out loud, or at least you thought it in your head. It was something that uh, you were using as a, a spiritual weapon. 
and it's used offensively uh, as well as as defensively. And uh, you can't use your helmet as offense unless you go and throw that thing. You know, it's not going to do much good. Or throw your shoes. You know, uh, breastplate. <laughs> but the sword you can use offensively. The emphasis here is how believers are to use the sword of the Spirit. You have this sword. It's, it's to be readily used. It's not a physical weapon, but what is it? It's a spiritual weapon. I have to think of 2 Corinthians 10 while we're on this. It doesn't talk about the sword of the Spirit here, but it does talk about our warfare. And so the next time you get into a battle, just remember, and we know about the flesh and blood thing, right? Verse 4, uh, chapter 10, 2 Corinthians 10. Sorry about that. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they're not fleshly, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, strongholds, fortresses. The Word of God, when you have truth, can start bringing down philosophies that people have. And if they're willing for you to give truth out, at the same time, maybe they are, are debating you, you can eventually get through to them if the Lord is leading. And one, it might take one stone at a time trying to get it out of that fortress, but you get a chink here and a chink there, and you take down those fortresses, uh, this uh, empty deception and the philosophies of the world, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself, all the worldly philosophies, all the different thinking, the worldview that's out there versus the Christian worldview. It can it um, every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. That's not only our own thinking; it should be chopping away, but also other people who have worldly views, anti-God views, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So we're out there in a in a warfare, but we're we're using it offensively. We're trying to win people to the, the victory side. Because we know it. We got it. We have it. Sorry, bad English. <laughs> but don't we? We have the truth, and we never have to doubt it. While other people have their own opinions, own ideas, they've gotten it from New York Times bestsellers, they've gotten it from atheists. Okay. That'll probably shut off in a minute or two. Who in the world brought their cell phone in here tonight and didn't turn it off? Who did that? Uh, it's gone. That phone does work some way. All right. Um, let's go to John fourteen seventeen. Have you been pulling down strongholds? One stone at a time. Knock those fortresses down, right? 14.17 The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. There is a chapter that He's talking about He's going to leave the Holy Spirit. And here is called the Spirit of truth. The Spirit of Truth. Let 
the world can't receive this, but we can. We do. Uh, and the uh, Holy Spirit who lives in us, that is such a key. In verse 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you, there we go, all things, and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. That's a comforting passage because we as Christians can claim that to them because he, he does do that. The Holy Spirit resides in us. He dwells in us. And when we need a Scripture, the Helper, the Comforter, the Paraclete to come alongside, that's the idea there, He does that. So even though we're in a, in a setting here where we're reading the Word of God and everything, you can have teachers, and, and God means those for those to be teachers and pastors, but ultimately it's the Holy Spirit who is in us who's really bringing the teaching of that to us. First John chapter 2 talks about that. So, um, I, I think of 1 Corinthians 2, we've turned there a number of times, almost every week, but that, there again it shows us that it's the Holy Spirit who has come to us that we're able to understand the Word of God. There's no way we'd never understand unless God gave uh, His people the Holy Spirit. And so we can understand the deep things of God. It's an incredible thing. The, uh, even the deep counsels of God are here, not because of our own intellectual minds, but the Holy Spirit. So He alone enables us to understand and receive the Word. Uh, defensive weapon, weapon it deflects an attack it handles everything precisely that's the idea of this, uh, this sword um, we're to fight the devil with, with this instrument it's a precise, a perfect instrument and the Holy Spirit's the author he's the author of this he's the one that made the Spirit and the Word they go together you can't ever separate the Word of God and the Spirit of God the two go hand in hand there's the sword. The sword of the Spirit. What's the next phrase? Which is the Word of God. I'm going to sound like Willie Ames there, Carolyn. What do you think? Getting close? <laughs> I should have brought that sword tonight. Why didn't I bring a visual aid? <laughs> Ooh. Yeah, you guys would never forget that. Really purple and yellow. <laughs> okay, the Word of God. A lot of times when you when you see in Scripture, um, I think of John one one. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And the word for word is logos. And we're we can associate that with logo. Um, it's really. Uh, something that is an expression of itself. You see a logo of something and you automatically think of what's behind that, what, what's the reality. Um, this is what this is. It's so closely associated with it. So the Word of God is the logos of God uh, or the very expression. It's the divine expression. That's the idea of logos, the divine expression. Well, that, that was really actually adopted by John to bring that in to Scripture because he used a Greek word that everybody in the Greek society was familiar with. The, the philosophies used logos a lot. There was a guy by the name of Heraclitus 
And Heraclitus had a question of how there could be order in a universe where you have everything that seems to keep changing. And he even thought of when you step into a, a river once, the next time you step into that same place, it's not the same. Because that water that you just stepped in the first time is different than it was before. And things keep changing, but yet at the same time, even though it's not stable, yet things remain the same. And so he kept thinking over that and over that, and he concluded that the Logos stood behind everything that we see, and it governs it. He said there's something controlling all of this. And so he took it as the, this, is, um, this is God's Logos, and it's ordering the principles of the world. So not, not a bad thought. So John writes the um, Gospel of John, and in the very first verse, he uses a Greek thought. And he's writing as a whole to guess who? The rest of the world, the Greek world. Now Matthew will use a lot of Jewish idioms presenting the king. Uh, but John is writing to the whole world here. He's writing to the Greek realm also. So uh, he uses that word and they go, oh, wow. Yeah, we're familiar with that. Um, so it's the very divine expression. Well, I took about five minutes to cross this one out because that's not what this is here. <laughs> we're going to use another word. Remember how we used makara? And, but there's another word for sword and it's not that one. It's the little sword. Well, this time, this is rhema. And that is the Word of God. The Rhema Patheos. Um, Rhema is something that is spoken. Uh, it's a word that is specific. Um, it, it's uh, a particular position of God's revelation. And so it's pinpointed down to a particular verse or a phrase, or uh, a thought in a certain area. So there's particular portions of Scripture that would be considered the Word of God here. When you come up against the enemy, there are, it's not taking the whole Bible as a whole and saying, I believe the Bible. Because <laughs> we already have that. We have that belt of truth. Here, we have to specifically use a promise of, that God has, or something that, that comes to our mind that can help us with this temptation or the accusing um, however Satan is trying to make you be deceived and uh, to doubt uh, therefore yeah now, it's not a general thing now right if you're tempted you know, you can think of a particular verse. First um, Peter one twenty five, you have I think this word come up. Rhema. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is that famous one. All flesh is as grass and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away. But the rhema of the Lord endures forever. The very spoken word. Particular word there. Go to Romans 10.17. 
and here it's talking about the word of Christ or word about the Messiah when we um, witness the gospel out. So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the rhema of God. What's happening here? Well, we're dealing with uh, salvation and bringing the good news to somebody and they have to hear a specific thing about the gospel. I mean, you could be you could be giving them great uh, exposés and doctrines on heaven and hell, but then finally you have to eventually get to the point of uh, where they are what? They're sinners. They need to repent uh, that there is a holy God and uh, they have to trust in Christ. You can think of the Romans road and such. Yeah, Bill. So in John 1, the word is love. Uh-huh. And now we're Yeah, the, where I took you guys off on a ra- rabbit trail for about five minutes. Well, usually, you know, uh, when I see the word word, I automatically think, well, that's probably logos. But if I keep in mind, well, it could be rhema. It's usually logos when you see the word come up. But in these particular cases where we've seen, it's it's rhema. And um, that's what we have here. That's that sword. So you can see how specific God's word is whenever he uses that. When he chooses to use that word rather than... Just that general word. So we're using the difference between having a capital W and that that'll work. Well, I mean, it's a capital W in yeah. John one. But right. Well, John one is a capital W. Logos. So it's almost like you're saying you're in John, God's word as opposed to it's God's word, not God. It's God's word that you're. Uh, and a specific word. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And or we can say Jesus is the logos, or He's the word. In, right. in the beginning was the word. The word is with God. The word was God. Uh, One fourteen. The the logos became flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. There, Christ is the word, and yet at the same time, this whole thing that we look at is the logos of God. It's the word of God. But when we get down to specific ones that can bring one to salvation or that can bring one into, uh, let's say, um, maybe they're having a little uh, a sin issue or they need to know certain things, you know, we, we, we go to that particular scripture and we say, okay, here's this one, and let's take another scripture, and here's what this one says, you know, in agreement, kind of put it together in a biblical approach. So if you need to the specific words, when you use that sword. Right. When you fight the devil, you better have particular scriptures in mind. Right? Yeah, very good. Very good. I'm not with that. Bill's been separating himself over there. I'm across the aisle. Capital W would be word like in John 1. John 1, in the beginning, was the word or logos. Right? So that's why he's using the capital W there. I think well in the John passage it's showing that Christ is God and that's what John is about 
He is the very divine expression of God. Or God expresses Himself through what? All of this. The whole Bible. All of Scripture. He, that, the divine expression is right here, isn't it? But through the, in these last days, He has shown Himself through the Son, right? Jesus Christ. He is the Word, the Logos, the expression of God, which we see right in here, which is equivalent to the very written Word of God. But then there's the specific, the very individual verses like, uh, if somebody said, well, what, what am I do to be saved? Well, Romans 10 is dealing with, you want to, we want to give them the Gospel. I think they need to know, they need to know some Scripture like, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23, right? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, right? We can give them all of those Romans passages to show their depravity, that they are in need of a holy God. You can, you know, uh, there's dozens of different verses that show that Christ died for them on the cross. It's, it's just specific about that. Yeah, there's a general sense, and then there's the very uh, pinpointed. Okay, here's the here's the thought: the more that we know of Scripture, specific places in Scripture, the more we know, and the more we understand, the more we have poured over Scripture and we have put it into our mind. Okay, that uh, Spurgeon used to call it being bibline. I mean, his blood was filled with the Bible. <laughs> Yeah, it was Bibling, the Word of God. The more we understand that, the more we're going to be able to march through Satan's strongholds, okay, in this fight and struggle, and lead people from his kingdom to God's kingdom, for instance. Yeah, that's that's one thing. That's the offensive aspect, you know, of bringing people uh, the truth, and and we have to handle it accurately. Um, I think of Second Timothy two fifteen. We want to, if you have a sword, you want to be able to use that correctly, right? You want to really be able to... You've seen the sword fights. And uh, these guys that, that can do it really good, they always win. They always win. The opposite of what Satan did to Jesus when he tested him all those times. I mean, he was using the work that we have to deal with much more accurately than he did. He just twisted it. You're thinking about 30 seconds ahead of where we're at. And you're exactly right. That's exactly where we go next. That's it. And that is using the Word of God right there. Automatic. You're thinking of particular situations. That's a rhema there. Second uh, Timothy 2.17. That's handling accurately, okay? Um, what did I say? Second Timothy 2.15, right? Okay, be diligent. Be diligent. What does that mean? Be working hard at it. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God. How can I be approved to God? A worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, handling it accurately, being able to use it correctly, uh, not misinterpreting it, making it say something uh, that it's not. We don't want to be ashamed in front of the Father. We want to be able to use that great weapon, that awesome weapon that He's given us, a powerful weapon and to use it correctly he's given it to us okay number three it is written who did say that Jesus right and that's that's the supreme example 
we look at Christ, and that's the best thing to do in every situation. Okay, first of all, how, uh, what did Christ say about this? What did He do? You know, I mean, I, w- I want to be able to see how He responds in different ways. As He was in the flesh, He's still God. And R.C. Sproul suggests that the emphasis is on a two-letter word that the devil used with Jesus. What is the word? If. If you are the Son of God. Why did he say that? Well, we're in Matthew 4, but we need to go back to Matthew 3 just before that. And even probably before that, but we'll, we'll be in 3. Just for a second. Chapter 3, verse 17. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. There, uh, I'm sure Satan knew kind of what was happening with uh, John the Baptist and Jesus and this baptism. That's a pretty big deal. Um, but you'll notice, this is my beloved Son. This is the Son of God. Chapter 4, verse 3. Now, when the tempter came to Him, He said, If you are the Son of God. And this is the very first temptation that we see recorded in here um, that Christ has by Satan. So, Yep. Challenged him right there off the bat. And he got him at his weakest point, right? After 40 days and 40 nights. He's a tempter if, if you are the Son of God. Already trying to create some doubt. Jesus has no trouble answering Satan. He believed every word of God. He is the Word of God, but he also believes every word that comes uh, from God is to be trusted. But just believing God's Word and say, well, I believe God's Word. You know, we have that that belt of truth and that is very good. We have to have that or nothing else is going to work. But just believing it's true is not enough. You, You have to know Scripture when you're in the battles to be able to resist Satan. You remember that uh, we're told many times to resist him and overcome him? Satan will not flee just because we uh, tell him to. You know, get out of here, Satan. I'm sure he's, oh, I'm sorry. You know, and just, he's not going to do that. We have to do what Christ did. He only retreats because of the power, not in us, but of the very Word of God. There is power in these words. There's nothing like it. There are no books, no other kind of writings that has the power of this. When Jesus was here on earth, people were amazed by Him the way that He preached and taught because He had authority behind that. And there it is in the written Word, the same thing. Look in Luke 10, 25 and 26. How often did Jesus say... It is written, or do you not know it is written? Luke 10, 25-26. He gets a question asked by a, a lawyer. Behold, a certain lawyer stood up tested him. Just testing. Saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He didn't really, wasn't really after the answer for the real truth. Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? Now this time... He doesn't say, oh, look, in Deuteronomy chapter, you know. He just says, 
what's written in the law? Oh, the man's a, a lawyer. That means he knew the word of law. Where'd the law come from? Word of God. <laughs> that was their constitution, the Word of God. First five books. The Torah. Pentateuch. And Jesus says, you know this. What, what's written there? You're a lawyer. You ought to know it. So he, a lot of times he will start a conversation with a question and sometimes he'll answer with a question. And so the man answered said, and everybody knew this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Where did he get that out of? The Shema. The whole Shema. Deuteronomy chapter 6. They had it memorized. Matter of fact, any boy who went to school had this memorized. They all had it memorized. They all knew this. And Jesus said to him, You've answered rightly. Do this and you'll live. The only problem is, is that he couldn't do that because nobody really can love the Lord their God with every ounce of their strength all day long. It was trying to show that he fell short of that law, as we all did. But Jesus didn't have to go to that verse because the man already knew it, didn't he? He asked him the, the question that would take him to that verse, and he said it, and Jesus said, rightly said. So Jesus took up the sword of the Spirit and just smote him. <laughs> every time he used the word precisely, accurately. It couldn't have been better scripture. Now, we go back through church history and you think of a man by the name of Martin Luther. And at that time, the Catholic Church hid the Word of God from all of the people and it was just to be read in Latin where they still wouldn't understand it. So they kept the Word of God from them. Isn't that interesting? And he took up the sword, started finding out what the sword had in it and uh, he was in the battle of his life for the rest of his life uh, because of the word but there he stood here I stand right Uh, the Puritans did the same thing you look at their writings and uh, who most often are they debating if um, they're not writing about something else if they're writing about uh, some particular doctrine justification of faith or such they will probably mention the Roman Catholic Church where they are in error and what the popes will do. They will attack the popes. They will name them. They'll show them what their wrong error uh, and uh, belief is and attack that system. William Tyndale wanted every plowboy to be able to pick up the Word of God and be able to read it in his own language, in English, which was illegal. And that's what Tyndale wanted to do. He wanted everybody to understand the Word of God and uh, the fallacies of the Roman Church. If you have something to test an authority, a so-called authority against, you've got to be able to read it to understand it. When that happened, that's when everything broke loose all over Europe and then it spread to the rest of the world. And you can see how God used that Reformation. Uh, all the Protestant reformers used the Word against the Roman system. Today we need to use the Word of God against the Roman system and any other kind of system that stands against what truth is. It needs to be used. It is written, right? That's what Jesus did. It is written. What an example. Okay. What about some of the truths about this uh, this sword, this, uh, this Word of God? You have a book, you have authors. Or an author. In this case, we have multiple authors written by kings, paupers, young and old alike, priests, prophets, 
fishermen, you name it, from every kind of background, every kind of walk, but yet they're all in agreement over literally, I guess you could say it from the time, if you want to take it from Moses, if you want to say it that way, all the way to the time of the New Testament, we're talking 1,600 years, somewhere in that vicinity, 1,500. But they're all saying the same thing. They never contradict each other, but yet they didn't know each other. God is the author. And we have to use this scripture here, 2 Timothy 3.16. This is an all-time favorite. We always have to go back to this. Somebody says, uh, what's the big deal about the Word of God? Well, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Theonoustos. God breathed. All the Scripture it comes from Him. He's the author. And what does it do? Well, it uh, it's profitable for doctrine. That's teaching. That's what we're doing here. It's profitable for reproof. Reproving uh, different people so they'd be corrected that they have the right thing for instruction and in righteousness that they become more and more practically righteous why? that the man of God may be complete thoroughly equipped for every good work so this is what we equip them with no other kind of things that we really need this is it right here we can have study guides and such and books to go along to help us and commentaries but ultimately it's all still based on this that we that we'd be equipped we know that, but good to be reminded. Another one that goes along with that about God being the author. These are just reminder verses. You can say, yeah, I never really knew exactly where they were at, but I knew that God's the author, but where could I do it? You know, Where could I show somebody? Well, there's Second Timothy. Think of Second um, Peter. And so think of Second for both those guys. Timothy and Peter. Uh, of course, Timothy was written by Paul. Second Peter is Peter writing. And... Um, Chapter 1, verse 20, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture, it's not just talking about future prophecy here, but proclaiming a proclamation of Scripture, is of any private interpretation. That means they didn't make this up. Peter just didn't write it out of his own thinking. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So there's the inspiration of, of God, the Holy Spirit doing that. It doesn't come from man. Even though he's writing it, God uses man uh, and his personality to fit with that, and yet it's still coming from the Holy Spirit. Isn't that incredible? How it's really fully from, from God. So when we open this up, what we're doing here tonight, God actually is speaking. Not not me. I mean, I, I mean, my voice is moving and everything. But in this word, though, that's coming out to us, regardless of what translation, we're getting a revelation from God. It's already been written. We don't, you know, we don't. We didn't write this. We we didn't uh, get some secret revelation. Everything's already been done. I think this is the most important claim that we can have about the Word of God. God wrote it. God, the creator of the universe, wrote this and decided to give it to us and to put it in a language that we can understand. He could have put it so high and so much out of our way on the way off the top shelf. But as John Calvin always said, he came down to us, revealed himself to us as in a baby talk. 
Yeah, it's. Like love, for instance. So that, and so we can get even more accurate, and that's why we've taken some of these words tonight, as a matter of fact, and explained it a little bit further. You already had an idea of what it was, but if we can get down to a little bit sharper on it, you go, oh wow, that that makes it even more clear. You weren't you weren't uh, muddied up too much by it anyway until I came along and then I really made a mess out of it on the back row back there. And <laughs> oh, that's them over there. Okay. <laughs> but, but we're clear now, right? Yeah. All right, okay. We're clear, right? Okay. <laughs> okay, uh, turning to Psalms. <laughs> Okay, God's the author, and here's the claim of inerrancy. Inerrancy and infallible. The Bible is infallible. It's inerrant. That means that there are no errors. In Psalm 19, which is all about God revealing Himself, the first six verses is a general revelation in revealing Himself through creation. The stars, the moon, the whole sky. And that's how He reveals Himself in a general way. The next section from 7 through 14 is a specific way He reveals Himself and that's through the Word of God. He says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony, that's the Word, of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes, that's the Word of God. Of the Lord are right, rejoice in the heart. The commandment, that's the Word of God. Of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord, that's the Word of God, is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous together. More to be desired than they are than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and the honeycomb, that's the Word of God, it's sweeter than honey. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. I shall be blameless. Um, so these were, these were written words instead of my testimony, precepts, commandments. Would it be Rima? Uh, well, actually, it's different ways of, of the, the whole Word of God, which would, would take in all the truth of God's revealed word. Um, law, testimony, statutes, commandments, fear, judgments, all of those, that is the whole sense. So it wouldn't be the rhema. It's just talking about how sweet you know the Word of God is. And so he, um, he gives us, in verse 7 and 8, it's perfect, uh, converts the soul, it makes wise and simple. Uh, the statutes are right. Okay, they're pure, it says. The commandments are in verse 8. So there is uh, a little bit on the inerrancy, the, the infallible nature. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church today uh, is very aggressive on trying to get the evangelical realm 
into um, making them doubt that the Word of God is inerrant. They they will say there are errors and because uh, they want the authority. The church is the authority. The Word is authority. And tradition is authority. But the Word of God is not the authority, is it? Right, Barb? And the Pope is infallible over the very Word of God. That is a travesty and why anybody in the evangelical realm can mix it together and say, hey, we're all in this together. We believe the same thing. That's why a Pope can't be married because then his wife will not uh, <laughs> that's that's right. <laughs> Immediately she would, wouldn't she? <laughs> Makes you think there, huh? <laughs> Is the word of God complete? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter four, it says not to add to the word of God or not to subtract, right? In Deuteronomy 12, it'll say the same thing. Go back to the end of the book in Revelation 22, 18 and 19. It says, Cursed is anyone who adds or subtracts from this book. Um, what's that? 22, the very last, very last chapter in the Bible, right at the end, 18 and 19 there. So that shows now, after John finished writing his book in the very first century, the Bible was complete. It didn't come in and be canonized until we finally put this all together, but God was done. He was complete, had everything done, revealed, and as far as the church is concerned, they had everything there. They just didn't have it, in a sense, compiled all together yet, but they knew who was, which was which. Uh, the Bible is an authority, right? It's very authoritative. It's effective. Oh, we know this one. Know this verse. Isaiah 55:11. I like this. The Bible has a lot to say about itself. We're just hitting just a few. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. He says, whenever my word goes out, it will never return void. What's that? Um, Not that I can think of. I think that's the famous place where we draw from. Right. Uh, the New World Translation? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, the one who wrote the New World Translation um, was actually... Um, he said he got his um, revelation from... Uh, he was just sitting there and he was able to write all this out. It was an automatic writing... Um, probably Philemon the demon was involved in here Uh, but his translation was written to make it fit what their belief was their belief system when you get Greek uh, translators whether they are Christian or not and of course you take um, some Christians I, I remember some interviews with one they said this is the absolute worst translation they'd ever read it said it was not treating the text 
fair. I mean, when you're when you're translating, you at least have whether it goes against your belief or not, you still have to translate what a word means whenever they take a whole thought and change it around. Now we're not translating. We and so therefore it's a very very bad translation. Uh, and it and was meant to uh, fit their belief system. And even in their belief system, you can use the New World Translation and show where they are wrong in their thoughts. Just using their own. Which is not a bad thing to do. Um, the Word of God is determinative. That means it determines one's salvation. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. Or I think of John eight forty seven. He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, you do not hear because you're not of God. Here the hearing is not just hearing, but it's also taking it in, listening, uh, understanding. So if... If you're of God, you hear, you understand, you take it in. Uh, the ones who don't hear, they're not of God. And so that's how much of a determinative factor it is. So it's inerrant, it's infallible, it's, it's complete, it's authoritative, it's sufficient for everything, it's effective, determinative. Word of God is uh, all of those things. That's, that's amazing. Uh, Word of God is the source of truth. John 17, 17. Thy word is truth. We know everything in here is always true. It's a source of happiness. Look in uh, Proverbs. Proverbs 8.34. You like to be happy? Everybody likes to be happy. Proverbs 8.34. Blessed or happy is the man who listens to me watching daily at my gates, waiting at the posts of my doors. Whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. He who sins against me wrongs his own soul. All those who hate me love death. (laughs) Blessed is a man who listens to me. You're blessed. Blessed. Happy are you. Luke 11, 28. This is a very word from Jesus. very word of God is speaking to them. This famous passage here. More than that, blessed are those who hear the Word of God and keep it. They not only hear it, but I mean they take it in like the hearing meant earlier that we were reading. You're blessed if you take in the Word of God. When you read it, you study it, you take it in. You are... You're settled. You're at peace. It's a good thing, isn't it? Spiritual growth. How about spiritual growth? Is that a pretty good benefit? You like to grow spiritually? 1 Peter 2.2 2. As newborn babes, just the way that babies are, here's what you're supposed to, here's the desire to have. Desire the pure milk of the Word. Why? That you may grow thereby. And you'll do that because you've tasted that the Lord is what? Gracious. Just as they are always after that milk, that's the way that we are to be. Just little reminders. Oh, thy word. I have uh, thy word is a lamp unto my feet <laughs> and a light unto my path. The word of God is guidance, isn't it? 
it's a it's a source of guidance. Second Timothy three sixteen we read that earlier um, about the word of God. It, it will make one mature. Now you might get the translation of perfect. The man of God may be complete or mature or perfect. Uh, of course, we're not going to be perfect in this life and these bodies, but it's talking about being one who is mature, solid, sound in the faith, um, rock steady. And, and how do you get that way? Well, you just stay instructed by God's Word, being equipped by Him. And it's the source of victory, isn't it? We know we have victory. The Word of God proves that we have victory. This is your victory, our faith. Our faith in this. We always have victory over our enemy if we use the sword correctly. Did you know that there is nothing more powerful? Think of all the TNT. Think of nuclear weapons. Think of all the mass destruction weapons we have in all the world. And the Word of God is much more powerful than that. What you're having in your hands right here tonight is the most incredible, powerful thing that you could ever imagine in your own minds. And we are reading it, studying it, and treasuring these things. This is the most powerful thing. Uh, nuclear weapons can kill, can kill in mass, massive ways, but God and His Word imparts life to take a dead person spiritually and make them come to life. That happened to everyone who became a Christian. Lies and slander, they destroy a lot of people, don't they? But God's Word can take a liar and transform him. Complete liar, and all of a sudden he can be transformed like that. Very compelling. Um, When you get into the Word of God, you see that it's different than any other book, and there is nothing that can compare to it. You might have read some of the greatest books have ever been written. And yet they just they still can't compare. John Calvin said this, This power, which is peculiar to Scripture, is clear from the fact that of human writings, however artfully polished, there is none capable of affecting us at all comparably. There is nothing that can come close to this book. And you know, back at the time before Christ and during Christ's time and after Christ, there were some great writings and you had people like Cicero and Plato and Aristotle, great philosophers the world had recognized, great writings uh, the world had said, and yet they couldn't even hold a candle to what we read in here. That was just man's thoughts. Some things are truths and some things are far from the truth can't really trust it ultimately. This is a divine writing. You are looking at something that God personally wrote to you. So powerful. I've heard of people say, this is God's love letter to me. Wow. Uh, it's compelling. It's convicting. Hebrews 4.12 says that the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's a sword, but it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Oh my, it can cut to the marrow. 4.12 Living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, 
and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there's no creature hidden from His sight. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. Wow! The Word of God does that. And it goes into where we couldn't even divide things up and it can go into the vision of soul and spirit. We can't do that. Joints and marrow. And uh, it's just saying that it, that's how convicting it is. Brings It uh, sifts the evidence of sin and guilt on us. Oh, ye slow of heart, Jesus said to the Emmaus disciples. Remember that? Luke 24.32 Didn't you know... <laughs> oh my. They were convicted whenever he spoke. Used the Old Testament. They said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the Scriptures to us? He was the living Word walking amongst them. He wasn't carrying along the scrolls and then took them out and then started laying on them and spreading them out and say, okay, look at here, right here. (laughs) He's quoting the Word of God perfectly because He is the Word of God. Can you imagine the lesson that they got as He opened up the whole Old Testament and went from Genesis all the way through Isaiah to all the way through Malachi proving that He was the one? Phil. Uh, There you go. There you go. Yeah. And it takes those little ones to finally get the summation, doesn't it? Oh, fatal four. Hey, does the Word of God ever bring you any comfort? Do you need comfort sometimes? Romans 15.4, and we're about ready to close this out. Can you believe that? Can you believe it? Thank you guys for bearing with us here. 15.4 For whatever things were written before, Old Testament, were written for our learning. Why? That we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. Man, is that refreshing? Isn't that beautiful? That we'd have hope. You know the Scripture is patient with us? The Word of God is patient with us. And He comforts us. Wow. What's that? Yep. Is that powerful? Very powerful. And it was so powerful that it took dead people like us to come to life. Every one of us were dead in our sins. And He brought us to life. And then He'll bring us to life in new resurrection bodies. Anytime, right? Anytime. Sum it up. I think this came out of James Montgomery Boyce. I've got three lines here. We must take the Word of God into our minds and hearts. Okay? You read it. You study it. You want to take it in and now live it. You do those commands that you know that are right and now you're obedient to it. Then he goes on to say, For a sword to do me any good, I will have to pick it up and use it. And he was talking about going to museums. He loved to go into England, go to the museums, the war museums where they had all these swords. But you couldn't get to the swords because they were behind glass. These famous battles. 
And so he couldn't use those swords. He says, just looking at it and admiring it will not defend me. Only the words we know that we put here will be useful to us. The Machira. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. What is that that uh, we'll recall, the Holy Spirit will call His Word does? So we don't get a chance to get a whole bunch of memorized or whatever. 